What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie the Wagner, my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter the Third. Oh, you're not going to say anything? Joe? No, I didn't do anything this time. No, not this okay. time. I know you're waiting for the interruption, which makes it a way less fun for me. Yes. Okay. So our guest today is Jared Sumner. What's going on, Jared? Hey. So for the folks at home who have not heard of you, can you please give them a little description of who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, I'm the creator of Bun. Uh, Bun is a, an incredibly fast all-in-one JavaScript runtime bundler, transpiler, and NPM package manager, and also package JSON scripts runner. And you're founder of Oven. Yeah, and we're, uh, and we're the company behind Bun. We raised $7 million uh, last summer to build hosting for Oven. Yeah, nice. I will be curious to get into that a little bit later. I heard you mention it on a different podcast and I was like, ah, a platform. I see where you're going. Okay, this will be interesting. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, we'll start with the whiskey though, because that's, I'm sure that's why you're here. (laughs) So today we are having the Peerless Small Batch Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Mine at least, because this is barrel proof, is 109.2 and... It is not age stated. And also the mash bill is undisclosed, but they say it is a sweet mash, which to me makes me feel like it's either like high corn or maybe has a little wheat in there or something. But I guess we'll find out how sweet that means. All righty. Like, I like your fancy whiskey cup. <laughs> so we usually start off, you know, you, I don't know. We'll, we come up with arbitrary descriptors, smell it, taste it, all that kind of stuff. And eventually what we're going to do is try to rate it on a scale of one to eight tentacles. Kind of arbitrary and subjective, but it's really based on like either whiskeys you've had in the past or for us, we'll like uh, segment things into bourbon, rye and whatever else, just because we get to try so many. And then you could say one, this is terrible. Never want to have it again. Eight, this is amazing. Nothing else will ever cross these lips. And then like obviously everything in between. Yeah, that's the gist of it at least. I'm not much of a whiskey guy or like in general, I don't actually drink that much, but I would say it's like maybe a, a five. It's not bad. I just don't like whiskey that much, to be honest. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm glad we forced <laughs> some on you. Oh, thanks for being a good sport though and, and uh, yeah. trying it anyway. So I'm going to smell it a little bit and I feel like I'm getting a little like kind of like creme brulee, but like the burnt sugar bit of it, you know, not quite like. Mm. It smells like craisins to me. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with craisins. <laughs> Tart, sour, who doesn't want that? And then to make me look like some kind of aficionado, I just, I keep these glasses around. You, know, <laughs> you got these things, who's, you know, it, it helps the whole experience and makes you look good. You know, what I get notes of, a weird thing kind of reminds me of, and maybe I put it in my head earlier or something, but like, did you have any like grandparent or like old uncle or whatever else that they would smoke a pipe, but it would kind of have like sweet flavored tobacco in it and that smell. Hmm. And see, when, when I grew up, you know, smoking inside was like a normal thing. So, you know, it's the early eighties and uh, grandpa Joe's having his pipe and it's got a like kind, kind of cherry smell to it, tobacco cherry smell. That's what this reminds me of yeah i could see that whatever you think of that i have pleasant memories around that but uh (laughs) yeah so it's not necessarily a bad thing but it is kind of mild it has a bit of punch and flavor in the beginning and then it dissipates pretty quickly and then it's mostly just burn Mm -hmm. i'm giving like kind of those qualities for me i'm kind of giving it a four like especially this one's like a little on the pricier side 
and compared to a lot of things that uh, just pack a little more depth of flavor and don't just punch you in the gut with a burn, eh, four for me. Yeah, I guess I'll say five. It's not bad, but it's, um, I don't know, it's a little harsh, I think, for the, the price point. Yeah, yeah. So, Jared, it's like a $100 bottle versus maybe like a $50 or $60 bottle that would provide, you know, something like a nice whiskey without being like pricey and not really doing much on the palate. But Cool. Yeah, that's the context there. Cool. Uh, well, let's talk about some things hopefully you're more into, like technology and code and whatever else. We have a few questions that we ask each of our guests and just trying to get like the hot takes of each person's opinion on some of these things. You know, it's the stuff that the tech Twitter wants to argue about from time to time. So <laughs> you go first, Robbie. All right. So the first one in TypeScript, do you use inferred types or explicit types? I like inferred types. Well, it depends. Sometimes it's really nice to be explicit when it's like, this is an, this is like an API schema and like, you want to very clearly see what everything is and what to, to expect. But I think in the, if I'm just like trying to build something, I'd much rather use inferred types. Cool. Yeah, I would agree with that. I dig it. I don't know how much styling you typically do, but do you like Tailwind or vanilla CSS? I usually use vanilla CSS, but I don't know because it's like, I used to actually do a lot of front end before Bung. And, but a lot of the time it would be like, it would be like these, projects that I quickly built and it would, it would end up with like a thousand, a single thousand line CSS file that just like accrues. And like, I don't recommend that in general, but that's like, if you're just like, I need to build this thing in like the next three days or something, then that's like the easiest way to do it. But I've used like Tailwind a little bit, but not enough really. My sense is that if I was really focused on front end today and doing front end all the time, I probably would use Tailwind. But it's like, there's like a bit of a learning curve of just like, like right now I'm more productive just writing old CSS, not old, but like the way people did it before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, gee. You embrace the cascade, the true cascade, which is just keep reading the file. You'll see what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It gets scary when there's like 10,000 line CSS files though. And you're just like, I don't know what's, what's going to break here. I'm just going to keep adding to the end, never change the rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely never did that. At a previous job, we used, the um, mm-hmm. and that was and so I still end up when I write this I still do that, but it feels weird. Yeah, like when you talk about BEM in theory, it sounds really logical, and then you start trying to do it, and then the project gets bigger, and you're like, "Wow, this is really convoluted yeah. and isn't as easy as I thought it was going to make things." And maybe I was just doing it wrong. It could be that too. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a lot of extra hoops for no reason, mm. personally, but. Yeah. Okay, here's the serious one. Get rebase or get merge? This is a very, like, I don't like this answer, but it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but usually it's like whichever one is going to make it easier for other people to review without also spending a ton of time fixing. Like, basically, if there's a bunch of conflicts, then rebase is always worse. If there's not that many conflicts and you intend and like the list of changes isn't actually going to be huge. Basically like the trade-off is mostly GitHub UI isn't very good when you have like, if there's a, if there's a merge comp, if there were a lot of changes in the merge, then GitHub will show all the changes for that, that were like other people's stuff or like previous commits. 
in the diff, and that makes the PRs impossible to read. So I would say this is mostly a GitHub bug that this is even a question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because I think they both can apply during like, what are the specifics? Obviously, you're get merging your new feature in and get rebase in a way in general is keeping your feature branch up to date. But what I like about get rebase is I feel like it forces you to have small changes that move faster. Because like you said, if it goes on too long, it's such a spaghetti mess and like almost neither works well at a certain point yeah yeah i think the the big thing for me with merge is uh i just don't like that it makes the extra commit that's like you merged this that's my nitpick but yeah merged from main (laughs) yeah jared merged from main jared will you just rebase that's what (laughs) i would be saying (laughs) what do you think about signals i don't like them (laughs) okay i don't like Super dislike them, but I think in most cases, most applications really do want to have everything updated in one cycle instead of extremely granular updates. And that's because it's just harder to reason about if any part of your application, any part of like the the rendering can change. And you, you don't want screen tearing, basically. That's not always what like can happen, but it should it's probably easier when you're using signals. Mm. I also just like the directness of of like you can use the structuring without like special stuff to make it work. It feels closer to JavaScript hmm. to use like, to not use signals. I see. You know, it kind of, uh, when I was trying to look up some things around your background, I see that you spent a little bit of time at Intercom as well. Did you ever work on any Ember applications there? Yeah, I worked on like the invite flow in Intercom. Yeah, did you have any feeling or feedback around the Ember framework? I used Ember before I used React. And yeah, this was before they had like proxies. So you had to use, I, mean, I, th- I think they had a proxies later. That was after I started using it. So you had to like do dot get and then you had to pass it like the dependencies mm-hmm. or the, is it the dependencies or the, it's been a little while. Definitely had to pass a, a string with the property name. Yeah. And it was really nice to not have to do that anymore after React. It was also just felt like a lot of code. I think. Ember was good in the time it was created, but React was just easier. Yeah, I don't think there's any necessarily wrong or right answers around these things, but I'm curious, like, because you've had your hands on lots of different things, just I I like hearing some different perspectives, really. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I I would probably use, like, my my default really is React. Yeah. I think it's good to, like, try other things, though. Yeah, get some, like, context and understand what's still working for you or what isn't sometimes. Yeah. Kind of like if you decide to create, I don't know, a whole new bundler, right? <laughs> and maybe something wasn't working for you and you go down this path. Let's get to the real reason why we're here. Yeah, we're actually about to ship a whole new bundler. We're getting really close. Um, that's what I've been really focused on. Uh, really what we've been really focused on, multiple people on the team. Yeah. And basically the, the plan there is it's going to be... Yes, build plugins work in Buns do bundler. To be for the happy path case, yes, build plugins run about five times faster. Mm. And that's like end-to-end build time. That's not like the plugin execution time. So that's like more stuff that runs faster. Like the actual plugins themselves run faster than that. But the thing that people care about is not how fast one part runs, they care about how fast the entire build is. Yeah. And for some context there, when you say five times faster, what are you benchmarking against specifically? In this particular case, it was 
uh, if you have like a YAML loader uh, as a plugin and you import it like a big YAML file, so then that has to be, that runs the YAML loader to convert it to JavaScript and then the transpiler then runs on that converted JavaScript file and then exports it and then creates a bundle. And that's, that one is five times faster. And this is like using YAML.js. And then also a difference is that it's running in bugs runtime versus running in nodes runtime for, in the ES build case. But I don't imagine the, the difference between the YAML parser performance itself is that big between the runtimes. It's mostly just the overhead of plugins and so a bunch of optimization work. Yeah, so really like a big change in from the, uh, like you were mentioning, like the runtime of versus Node, probably versus Deno, those kinds of things. Are what you And that's most of the benchmarks that I'll kind of see within your docs and on the site in various places. You'll say this thing here, and then you're looking at do this operation here it is in bun, here it is in node, here it is in deno. So that's kind of what you're always looking for, looking at for those benchmarks. In this particular case, we're, we're going to start doing more benchmarks with bundlers yep. because we really want people to use bun as a bundler and, and in addition to a runtime. Mm-hmm. And so with the bundler API, uh, it's just a fu- one function in, in bun, uh, it's just bun.build and it's built in, it returns a promise. The first version is going to just be uh, ESM only. We're going to do other formats too. Like we'll do like a, yeah, if you, a little bit later. So for someone that has no idea how to build a bundler or how any of this stuff works, how do you continue to make things so much faster? Is it like the core code is just way faster or is it like on a case-by-case you want to implement a thing, you see how fast it's running elsewhere and just find the where they've fallen short and, and improve that? Or, or how does that work? It really depends. But the pattern I would say is one thing that we do a lot of that I think is harder to do in other cases, or it's just really more, it, it makes the code more tedious, is we pre-allocate almost everything. So when there's like a big array of, of something, then instead of pushing to the array dynamically, we set up, we, we do one pass to count the length, and then we do one allocation because usually, and not usually, but in a lot of cases, the thing that is slow is reallocating data repeatedly as the size changes over time. Another thing, is pretty much all of one is written in SIG. And there's a lot of things that, and usually the other tools are written in, in JavaScript. In, in this case, I guess if we're comparing ES build, then it's Go. But another thing that we do a lot of is SIM, or SIMD, which stands for single instruction, multiple data, I think. Uh, but basically, there's a bunch of CPU instructions that let you operate on more data at once. Normally, if you're like reading through a string, you're looping character by character. In a lot of cases, Bun will loop through eight characters at a time, 16 characters at a time, something sometimes more than that. And when you use SIMD, you can have those same, it doesn't, it's like slightly slower in terms versus one character in the, like as a one instruction, but it's one instruction instead of eight. Right. So that's a, an example there that was, this is high impact for, for when we do text encoding and text decoding, like if you do like buffer dot two string, the code in there eventually uses SIMD, and that that makes it sit like multiple times faster than in Node, and and we do just a lot of that. Gotcha. And then yeah, you mentioned Zig. What was the motivation there? I feel like most people had kind of not heard of it until you dropped Bun, and they're like, "What is this new thing that that he's using here?" Um, like you know, a lot of people are using Rust or or something like that for things these days. Like what what brought you to Zig and had, had you used it before, or were you just kind of looking for something really performant? So, Bun was actually my first project in Zig. 
And we took a really big bet. And I still think it was great that we just took that bet on, on Zig. And just Zig is really productive. Like I tried to use Rust um, and I just had a lot of trouble being productive. And Zig is a really good trade-off between like low level and sort of like C, but with a little bit better safety features like balance checks and arrays and alignment checks and integer overflow detection, integer underflow, that sort of thing, while also just being really productive and having, and also comp time is really cool. Uh, it's this idea that you can execute almost any of the code at compile time, and then it will just become part of the rest of the code. And so we, we move a lot of work that would normally happen at runtime to happen at compile time. Like we have hash tables that are entirely, entirely exist at compile time instead of the overhead of creating a hash table at runtime. And they also do give you really fine-grained control over memory allocation. And normally memory allocation is like the thing that makes everything slow. So by having fine-grained control over that, we can make a bunch of stuff faster and have like specialized memory allocators. Like the, AS, like the JavaScript parser has its own memory allocator. Yeah, that's the one of the biggest things I, I've heard you mention in previous podcasts around, like some people might see that as a downside, having to deal with memory allocation, garbage collection, all those things on its own. But you were saying that there's like, it basically encourages you to uh, determine your memory early and keep it small. And then that kind of helps the rest of that maintenance throughout. Yeah, that is a big part of it too, is also if you can reduce the amount of memory that's in use. Normally, a lot of the time people think performance the performance of real applications is like IO bound. And it is in the case of we are waiting for like a network request, but usually it, there's just so much overhead that is CPU bound. And for CPUs, the thing that's slow is usually it's not actually the processing, it's memory. It's because the memory latency is, is pretty high relative to how long, like in a lot of cases, if you make something smaller, you end up making it faster too. So smaller in terms of memory usage. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, someone should tell Chrome about that so it can stop <laughs> using so much memory. Yeah, it doesn't have some little flag now, though, where you can turn on some little memory management thing where it won't have such long-running things because well, so many people don't close tabs and don't close browsers ever. Yeah, I think they have a, a thing that's like the, the tabs run in the background or so, like they just don't run all the time anymore or something. So what we need to do is write uh, create a new browser in Zig. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I could do it, but yeah. it's somebody who likes to, who works about something that is a massive amount of work. A web browser is like a whole other thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are going to keep making things, and part of that is going to be a a hosting product. And I don't know how much you can tell us early days and all that kind of stuff, but I'd be very. It's really early. Yeah. But I can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear like what you can. And I'm going to caveat this with like all of this might change. It's still very kind of the plan there, though is. We want to have low double-digit millisecond start time, maybe single-digit millisecond start time of like for most apps. And we're going to have uh, JavaScript core VMs, JavaScript core is the engine that Bun uses. For comparison, V8 is the engine that Node uses. And the plan basically is we're going to run like thousands or more of these uh, on individual servers where each instance is like a user's application. It's going to deploy everything on demand. We're still debating on whether to do whether there's going to be a build step or not, or whether we would just run the build as part of the deploy process, like as part of starting up every single time. The status quo with Bun is that it it builds every file when you start it, but if you're redeploying the same application 
multiple times, it seems like it's going to be pretty wasteful. However, it might end up still being cheaper than like the process of hacking the build step, waiting for the build to complete, then uploading the build to the server. We, we just need to run a bunch of experiments to, to answer that. The plan there is also we're going to have we're going to have like servers in, in data centers. We're not going to use public clouds for the hosting. Mm. And I think that's going to be a really important part of making it fast and making it cheap. Because I think it's also like kind of philosophically, we need to like one is sort of a, one kind of embraces not invented here syndrome where like normally it's like a bad thing that to like, oh, this is not the core part of your thing. So you should go and uh, use an existing tool, but you can get a lot of value out of building it yourself and you can, you can make it a lot better. And it's not for everybody, but in our, in our case, I think uh, it's what we do. It sounds like your personal mantra. If I was to, you know, just based on what I know about you, what we've talked about here, what you've talked about in other places, like you're like, no, I can make it myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, as the time goes on and there's so many bugs that we need to fix, I've become a little bit more reluctant on it because like, just like there's so many, like we in Bun, we have like a custom HTTP client and like, okay, there's some bug recently with like TLS handshaking and all right, now we got to port the code from, from like, if there's, this is like really obscure and we have to like port, so we ported some code that we saw on like Chromium to make it work correctly in Bun so it behaves consistently with like web browser. But I'm very aware of the cost of building it yourself. And so we're a little bit more careful now. Right. And you're, you're thinking about more people than yourself. You're thinking about a company and other, you know, other people making decisions and being a part of that. And like, while you could have put heads down and maybe gone off and fixed some like one-off problem. You got to think about overall growth and trajectory and keeping these things going forward. So that makes a lot of sense. I still would have like printed you up a t-shirt that says, you know, there's something about just making it yourself. (laughs) And I could see that you just wear that to conferences. It would be like, it would make sense to everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, that was more comment than question. Sorry about that. (laughs) <laughs> but it does help give me a little something because in my mind, when I heard you mention it before, I was thinking like, OK, so they're going to like do their version of Vercel with this different engine and some, you know, and it's UI, but also some different underlying technologies. But if it's really ground up, like I can see where there's a lot of different opportunities there. And it's not just like, yeah, Amazon console sucks. So we made it better. And then we put our proprietary product in there to do this serverless thing with apps and whatever else. But I mean, like, this is completely different. So um, I'm excited about that. I, I really see Oven as, as an infrastructure company and in that like we're building an internet infrastructure. And I think that like we can make the internet and JavaScript applications faster and we can make it easier to deploy and we can make it better. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be really fun. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it because in my purview, you seem to be doing a lot of work. You're both simultaneously, constantly uh, working on features in Bun and whatever else, and also tweeting constantly. <laughs> well, so many tweets. <laughs> so it's good that you're able to do those things uh, at the same time. But I actually I want to regress slightly to something you were just saying there, like making the internet better. But my question is, can you make the internet more fun and weird? <laughs> yeah, that was a kind of before, for more context, before Bun, when I was, I, I had left, like kind of, there was this blog post I wrote, uh, why isn't the internet more fun and weird? Uh, and kind of talking about how it used to be that you could like edit CSS on websites and that like you you could, we, we sort of today have like 
the internet is like a bunch of polished boxes that are like handed to us. And there's no like, people used to be able to like repair things on in like physical things that they bought. That also used to extend to the internet where you, you had CSS, you could, you could tweak it. In, in the MySpace case, it was actually an accident. The, there was like a bug that let that let you edit the CSS and they realized that people actually wanted to use that or like wanted to do that. And they were like, oh, this is a feature, not a bug. Right. <laughs> yeah. I still think about this a lot. I don't really know how, how yet how it would fit with how it's going like, to fit with like oven and hosting, but I definitely want to encourage, like have that spirit. Yeah. I would fully support making MySpace again, <laughs> just for the record, because that was so fun. Buy it from Timberlake. I'm sure it's cheap. Well, <laughs> so for context listener, yeah, Jared mentioned that he wrote this, this article and the context there being around like the internet was kind of for everyone. You could come there and there were places where you could have your own space. I mean, prior to that, you had things like GeoCities or whatever else where you could have your own little hosted website space that you could personalize with some basic HTML and CSS and CNET would give you basic HTML lessons and stuff too. And so it was approachable and kind of for everyone to some degree. And basically where the internet's, as many things do, become about money and services and apps versus spaces or sites or whatever else, like there's a real void in that, right? Like the fun parts where you could go and say, yeah, I have my local soccer team and I want to make a little space for it. Or I remember when I was younger, my brother played this game, Tribes, and he loved it so much. And he set up his own GeoCities site for Tribes and his tribe that he had created online, their whole like kind of vibe. And, and so, I mean, I guess like that really isn't kind of there anymore. Like there's forums, there's reddits, and every, but everything is so super organized and less personal. I actually really enjoyed reading that article and seeing that and like made me think as well, like that is a void kind of in the internet. We're all like, what app can we make? What thing can we fix for people? And okay, how do we make sure they stay within our box so that, you know, we don't risk security and personal information and credit cards and all this very serious stuff, which applies to certain bits, but yeah, where's the fun? Yeah, I, I think part of it too is that part of it is like the solver. There's just we're like us we're like older and, and the people we were at the time at that time were different now. And and I think today a lot of the this energy is kind of moved to like Roblox. And it, so they're not like websites, they're like different boxes, I guess. It, and sort of like I do think Roblox has done a very good job of it, but it's still not like websites. It's it's not the same uh, like a like publicness of a website. Right. But they maybe identified a bridge there a little bit. And then again, they're commoditizing it. And so that's where probably some of the, you know, some of the creativity gets lost to a degree. You can be creative within their context, but you can't really like do whatever you want. Yeah. Here's a spot, do whatever you want. That's an interesting thing. Anyway, I was just trying to dig in and see what you've been up to. And I came across that and I was like, this is interesting. I wish you had written more than one of these blog posts. It was a lot of work. That was I wrote that blog post like in 2019, I think. That was like, yeah, it was like I think it was like three weeks of work. Yeah, it was around the time that I I'd left Stripe, or it was just before that, and I was like going to build a product around that, and then I tried it and it didn't. It's hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. First or second time you left Stripe? <laughs> that was the the second time. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. You were like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> I really liked working there, but I, I felt like. I'm just a person who likes building things a lot and I'm not very good at working at large companies. That's fair. That's completely reasonable. 
So we started to talk about Twitter for a second, and I'm only going to ask this just because this was a previous guest slash listener question without outing anybody. So yes, lots of tweets out there. Would you be willing to read one of your draft tweets? <laughs> Honestly, let me see if they have any interesting ones. It could be an uninteresting one, and then it satisfies the requirement. <laughs> as long as it's in draft, it's sort of like a win. There's no pressure on this show. That's what's good about it. Yeah. You can draft one right now and say anything you want. Yeah. You can make it up. <laughs> I quit. Oh, wait. No, no. One of them was, I used to spend 15 minutes clicking around before every release of Bun. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Another one is, please do ship your TypeScript source. <laughs> it was a quote tweet in response to one of the people who work on TypeScript saying that TypeScript package maintainers, please, please do not ship your TypeScript source and TS config in your package. Uh, <laughs> yeah, bad advice. Ship it. <laughs> the reason why mostly is because if you ship the source file, then your tooling is better able to like optimize it. Because once it's been transpiled, then the tooling, it's like a bunch of information is lost. Right. But the, the, of course, the trade-off is that you have to transpile it and... Like in Bun's case, like selfishly, where you transpile every node module. And this happens regardless of whether or not it's a JavaScript file or a TypeScript file. So it's good for us, but it's also like easier for people because you don't have to have a build set before you publish. You just publish. Yes. And it also means that like you don't have to worry about TypeScript declaration files. You just, you, it'll show up in your editor because it's a TypeScript file. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. I like that. I love that. Yeah. If they would just make TypeScript able to run everywhere then we wouldn't have this problem anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's a made-up language, Robbie. It's made up. Might as well be CoffeeScript. No, 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 no. Don't take me back to CoffeeScript. <laughs> anyway. Those were bad days. Yeah, you know. We've had this debate in the past. It wasn't that bad. Mm. It was better when it became real. It had good ideas, which are now part of JavaScript, so I appreciate it for that. Yes, there we go. Should we just move into like, so we obviously know you probably spend most of your time running your company and writing code and whatever. Do you do any other hobbies or, or anything like that? The only other thing that I really do is just like run, but I don't, I'm not like good at it. I just, it makes me happier. I mean, unless you are like trying to run a race, I don't think you can really be bad at running, right? You know, like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's always someone that's worse than you at running. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like that's subjective, right? Anyway, because running is such a like solo activity. So as long as you're like feeling good at it, about it, and you feel good afterwards, like then you're you're good at running. If you feel like you are dying and your knees are falling apart, well, maybe you're bad at running. I don't know. You should do more of it or try another sport. But uh, but unless you're like in a competitive situation where you are like against that, then I don't know. You're good at it. I'm just trying to support you, Jared, and just give you a little kudos. <laughs> You're not bad at it. You're just fine. It makes you happy. <laughs> so what's the last movie you've seen? I can't remember. It was probably one of the superhero movies. Okay. It's like on Disney Plus. Like a Marvel? Yeah, Marvel then. I was going to ask you DC or Marvel. That would be kind of where it goes. Those are where they're... Um, oh, actually, the last one was I saw the... I, I watched this over like three nights because I, I kept falling asleep. But the Ryan's, the, the Snyder... I don't remember his last name. Oh, like, Zack Snyder's. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, the Justice League Zack Snyder edit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, that's like three and a half hours, so that <laughs> makes total sense. If you start it at night, and then you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's all black and white. Yeah. Right. So, uh, 
Yeah, so that makes sense. Okay, so you don't mind you Disney Plus or or some Batman-y kind of things. I actually, yeah, I liked that one. I uh, yeah, I'm a little equal on both superhero universes. I think I like Marvel better. Yeah, because it's it's happier. I was a Spider-Man fan as a kid. Yeah, there's a lot more jokes, right? It's like I think I heard this in a Kevin Smith interview or somebody recently who's in the comic world, and they were like, "Yeah, Marvel is the one where they make kind of sarcastic jokes a bunch, and DC are the straight edge." Hmm. I don't yeah, know. food for thought there. I guess Batman doesn't joke. Not really. He's very serious. His parents were murdered in front of him. That's true. Like, you know, he's just he's just trying There's to no joy left in his life. Yeah, he's spending his billions and he's just trying to like keep it going, Robbie. You know, he he stays up all night. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Right. You know, Spider-Man lives with his Aunt May and has apple pies or something. I don't know. Yeah. And it, his life's harder because he like has to work out and like have technology for his like he doesn't have superpowers like yeah. Superman's just like ah oh, I can just fly and whatever and you know like that's easier right <laughs> indeed Batman earned it yeah that's true I read comics and stuff as a kid too and I loved the Frank Miller stories around Batman like where he's aging Batman and kind of what's happening there because inevitable at some point right where do you go no Batman doesn't age I saw some with Batman Beyond yeah a while ago. Yeah. And that's like the, the future Batman cartoon. And like, yeah, it, it has a similar, I don't know if I haven't watched the, the aging Batman you described, but they show him in that as full and like, it's interesting. Yeah. The next gen of someone else who also had to like work out. I mean, he had to, he basically just had to end up with a benefactor though. Right. Cause Wayne industries has the billions and all this equipment and constant like military level equipment that gets pulled into his whole deal and he gets too old to use it. Next dude has to get that cash, I guess. That's the next start. Can you help me get some VC funding around that? Like vigilante building real Batman. Yeah. Build real <laughs> Batman, real Batman dot IO. I don't know. It's probably a reason why I don't own a company and you do. So here's that. I wonder if we will do like jetpacks and those things. Like it'd be really cool. Yeah. I'm just waiting on the flying car. It's the, all about the flying car. They've been talking about the flying car forever. They could totally do it now, but they like still don't for whatever reason. Well, they're trying to get autonomous on roads and then... Forget the roads. There's less stuff to hit in the sky. Yeah. Wasn't that <laughs> uh, the end of Back to the Future? But you have to constantly be worried about like, are the cars going to fall on me? Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. I didn't think about people below the cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, nobody walks anymore for sure. Yeah. I feel like underground is more likely. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Like if the surface heats up too much, then underground is an, a, a natural progression. We've done that. We've built things underground. So kind of go down, but not too far because that's closer to something else. But but also because you don't have to worry about like flying car, like cars flying into buildings or uh, like like there, there's a very clear highway because it's just underground and there's very clear constraints for, for like where. Oh, the flying car goes underground. Okay. Yes. I conflated those and thought that the people mm -hmm. go underground, but we do need sun to a degree, right? Like we're <laughs> supposed to get some things from like fresh air and sun and all that without getting cancer. Yeah. What? We're all getting cancer though. doesn't matter. Wasn't that like, I don't exactly remember the context, but. I don't know if it was Hyperloop or just like something that they were building where you could like drive your Tesla into a thing that would then go underground and like take you somewhere. 
the Hyperloop was going to use a special train kind of thing. And essentially it was going to turn like LA to San Francisco into a 45 minute. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't your car. Did you see the thing with the car though? Like there was. No. There was one with the car. Yeah, I think there was a tunnels thing. Mm. Boring tunnel, boring. I don't 100%. So they had to work. Yeah. Yeah. The boring company is his like whole tunnel thing. Yeah. The flamethrowers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you didn't get a flamethrower? I didn't know. No, me either. I don't know what I would do with that, but it's funny, I guess. Yeah. The Boring Company is the one that kind of makes the tunnels and the Hyperloop was supposed to be the whole use physics to shoot you much faster on that whole trip. But I don't know. Yeah, it sounds dangerous. I would not be the first one in the Hyperloop, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Save that for the monkeys. We always test out things on monkeys. It works, and it would be really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would be super cool. You're in San Francisco, right? Yeah. And then if you needed to go down to L.A., zoom, Hyperloop. It's the way to do it. Yeah. I'm in the desert. We don't go anywhere. Yeah, I thought it was cool because, like, I think it was D.C. to New York was, like, 30 minutes or less or something. So you're, you could literally be in D.C. and be like, let's go to this restaurant in New York for dinner. Yeah. And you could do it. Like, that's crazy. Make your reservation and get there on time. That'd be pretty nice. Yeah. Because yeah, the fastest train is two and a half hours. Yeah. It also would make remote work like way better. Oh, yeah. That's true, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what its intention is, is to try to, like, bring efficiencies around commutes back and forth and that stuff. I mean, at the time when he was talking about that, right, like, there's been a pretty decent tech buildup in L.A., and obviously San Francisco is the heart of it all, and so, like, Connecting those two behooves quite a bit. All that entertainment tech that's in L.A. now. Yeah. Yeah, you got to connect the uh, Netflix offices, at least. <laughs> I guess that's not San Francisco, for one, but... Yeah, it's like a little bit outside, right? But I'm, I don't know, maybe there's just... Yeah, where do you get to do stops, or where can you get yeah. on, and where is that all kind of apply? It can't stop. It's too fast. Yeah, that's the point, <laughs> is that it doesn't <laughs> stop. That's why it works. It's momentum-based. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, there's a reason why I'm not working on that project as well. I'm not selling myself well as a as an asset here, but uh, I can tell you that <laughs> that kind of engineering isn't for me. Well, didn't they use like some node stuff in the uh, the rockets? Like the, I think there was something JavaScript based that was. I think they use Chromium. Yeah, uh, like for the UI. Okay. Yeah, because it's like you know, if there's some JavaScript in there then we all have a chance to uh, build whatever we want. <laughs> That's true. Not everything is Java or C++. Yeah. Food for thought there. All right. So we talked about your hobbies. What other developers or projects do you find interesting? Is there any other like recent developments that you have started to follow? I think Alicia.js is really cool. It's a fun web framework. They're doing a great job with it. It's really fast. If you run Alicia JS on like 12 cores and you run like Actics, I think that's the name of that, the, the, the popular Rust web framework mm -hmm. on 12 cores, then the performance is basically the same. Wow. Of course, Alicia is in TypeScript and Actics is in Rust. And this this is like in a hello world benchmark, to be clear. And, and the, the DX is good. And they have like, they, they spend a lot of time on it. Alicia dot. JS, you said? And then I don't know if you could. Yeah, you can, if you Google Alicia JS, it's like the first result. E L Y S I A dot JS. 
Okay, there you go. I was like, I'm going to need some spelling here because I'm thinking about yeah, A. There's a lot of ways to spell A-L-Y. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, thank you. Uh, I would check that out. That'd be interesting. I played with a little bit, a couple of the uh, like Wasm Rust frameworks just to look at that from like, oh, a web application standpoint and something that ends up in like web components or whatever. But cut out the middleman, right? Yeah, if you can run JavaScript and it's anywhere close to as fast as Rust, that's a huge win. Yeah. And I think, like, generally speaking, if your application is a bunch of, or is, like, very I.O. heavy, then that's something where the JavaScript runtime can really make it fast versus the JavaScript engine. Because there's specialized system calls, like, the, the operating system does a lot of work. It has a lot of different ways to, to optimize specific things. So when the APIs are somewhat high level, which means they're easier to optimize because they're, they're very specific. So like in Bud's case, uh, the HTTP server it uses the web standard response object. When you, and you can like, if you return a file, uh, you can do return bun.file and then path. Or return new response bun.file, then path. And that returns like a, a, a blob, like a web standard blob object. But it's a lazy blob. And, and the web server recognizes that you're trying to stream a file. So then instead of reading the file manually and then writing the file manually to the socket, it uses the send file system call. And that makes it much faster because it happens, the copying stuff happens in the kernel. So kind of what I was saying earlier about the shipping TypeScript libraries, it's the same, a similar sort of idea that when you're closer to the, the source of truth, then you can make it faster, you can make it better, and you, you can also make it simpler by not having to have this extra step. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I appreciate the way you're able to explain those things too to more layman-esque folks who uh, aren't operating on those levels and working on those specific things. Like that does, that does make it kind of clear. It's really just some new ways to think about dealing with those things in a web context too. And like maybe less stops along the way is basically how I'm reading it. Let's cut out the number of stops. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That seems really cool. So looking forward to maybe playing with some of that. Yeah, I think that was like, a big thing in some of the the open source stuff we've done, like Shepard, like trying to figure out what to transpile and what not. And like, I guess it's it's not TypeScript right now, but just like all of these extra steps. Whereas if we kind of all agreed on just ship kind of raw stuff where like your bundler is going to run Babel on everything, it's going to run like a TypeScript compiler on everything, like all the stuff, then we can all just kind of ship what we write it in. We don't have to worry about, oh, I need all these different dist files and all these different declaration files for TypeScript and everything. And like, it'll just work. I can just like, you know, assume it will work in the, the end application. And like, if another part of that like matrix of things to worry about is like CommonJS versus ES module. Yeah. And like packages on exports and like which condition to use and all that stuff. Like, there's just way too much complexity. Yeah. And the complexity is there for a good reason. It's because uh, we had like mature, a mature ecosystem. People built real things, and those things need to work. But it makes the day to day more challenging. Yeah, for sure. And then you mentioned DX a little bit previously too. In that, if I can get all of the package, and I need to dig through and understand what some compiled code is doing, if you were shipping the source in that way, the TS source, a I could use it in more advanced systems, but in even some of today's and more, you know, more less advanced systems. I've got a problem and I've got to dig through some compiled code. And sometimes that's pretty challenging to get through and understand what's going on. Readability, I think, is a good part of DX. 
And if I'm getting it all, I can read things and understand more about my dependencies. Yeah, totally. Yeah, in, in Bud's case, we also, when, when we were doing the transpilation, if you throw an error, could, because every file is transpiled, a challenge there is we, we also generate memory source maps of everything. So that way, when you, when an exception is raised, you don't see like the transpiled source, you see the, the original source code. And we also show like a, a few lines below and above the exception, where the exception happened. It's kind of weird because in that actual, how that actually is implemented, we don't keep a copy of the original source in memory. We just retranspile it a second time to get the mappings. And that's part of the thing of, of getting the, part of why Bun needs to be fast. Like when you, when you can be, when, when the performance of these things is good enough, you can just do it like the stupid way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if I think it's stupid. I think I actually think it's pretty clever based on memory. you like in the back of your mind, memory management is always the thing. And so you're like, what else do I need to do to get this? I don't need to already have it because it's so fast. I'll just in time rent, you know, compiling, boom, boom, boom. Now we'll make this smart and give it a little more information. So I can see that train of thought being very connected actually. Yeah. But it's also like, it's because I feel like it's when somebody looks at this, they would think like, oh, why you should obviously just cache this. It sounds very cacheable. Right. This is the thing we're going to actually experiment with once we, after we ship the bundlers. Because right now we only transpile every file. We might try like bundling every file, like bundling the entire app ahead of time at, at start. There's some differences there with like, some things will need to be like virtualized, like import.meta will need to be like an object uh, instead of like the actual import.meta. But it might also fix some bugs. Like there's some edge cases that we still haven't fixed with like CommonJS and, and EOSM interop that need to be fixed. And either we're going to fix it that way or we'll find some other way to fix it. And also it would mean the downside of this approach is that that's a case actually where we should potentially cache. Because for larger apps then, because otherwise you're going to be reading like 30 files immediately uh, or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's something we need to experiment with, which we can since we're, gonna have, we're about to have like a fast new bundler. Yeah, I do think in some cases people overcache and like, you know, especially if it's a smaller file, is it actually quicker to cache it or should you just like recompile and ship it? Because you would have to do benchmarks, I guess, of both cases or whatever. But like at work, we had a, we have this uh, one file that's like five lines of CSS that we're caching in Fastly. And I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> so, you know, like it depends on the file and it depends on the use case. And I think some people are kind of in just cache all the time mode and they sh- you should challenge that and figure out what's the better solution. Yeah, there are a lot of real cases where caching makes something slower because the thing you're caching is actually pretty quick to regenerate. Right. There's also the case where, uh, you know, the thing about cache where it rules everything around me. <sighs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Oh. It's one of my favorite, like, kind of nerd hip hop crossovers. I don't know. I love it. And, but, and just in general, though, they say, like, two artist things and software and naming things and cash. Mm-hmm. There's a really good blog post on from like 2020, I think, of, of like, it's also so weird that that sounds like that sounds like it's like in the abstract in my head, 2020 still sounds like it's the future. But <laughs> right. it's absolutely not. <laughs> but about like Mozilla Firefox's. The like browser caches are sometimes slower than just like the raw network, like getting like reading the data uncached. That it's such an interesting trade-off of like when to cache. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's there you go. Mentioning there, there's so many layers where that can occur, Mm -hmm. right? It's like where's the place for this thing, for this thing, 
separating things out, putting them all together. It's still a complex problem because it's funny when you think about it, right? 2020 kind of sounds like the future, but we're in the twenties now, but like the internet is really not that old, you know, like, but it moves exponentially. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be hitting, you know, a speed increase or whatever. It's in a hyperloop. Sure. I get that. But like, still there's so many things to continue to figure out and improve and change your thinking on and whatever else. And I just always kind of feel like at the end of the day, like there isn't really one right answer. There's probably some better answers and some worse answers, but there's definitely not one right answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. All right. We are about at time here. Is there anything that we missed covering or anything you want to plug before we end? We're hiring. We're hiring specifically Zig and C++ engineers to make Oven uh, and for building our hosting platform. It's going to be one of the things we need to do is figure out how we're going to actually manage like, like the software for, for like the hypervisor for managing all of these JavaScript VMs securely and efficiently and making deploys fast. I think it's going to be really fun to work on. Is there a large Zig community or would you invite others? Like, is there a similar line of experience that you think like translates well? Yeah. So anybody, if, if you were familiar with C or, or C++, you can learn Zig really quickly. Zig is, it doesn't actually have that much syntax. There's typically only one way to do things. So it makes it quick to learn if, if you have an existing background with manual memory management. Excellent. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. If you've written your own malloc, apply. all right thanks everybody for listening if you liked it please subscribe leave us some ratings and reviews and we will catch you next time thanks for listening to whiskey web and whatnot this podcast is brought to you by shipshape and produced by podcast royale if you like this episode consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating maybe a review as long as it's good You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.